The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Friday, December 8th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I feared that Friday prayers would be the cause of clashes in Jerusalem and beyond. And there were massive protests in Jordan, but they weren't violent. And a Palestinian man has been shot dead by the Israeli army in Gaza. This because of Donald Trump's decision to declare Jerusalem the capital of Israel. They are calling for days of rage and, in general, as CNN Nick Robertson reports, getting it to some degree. The Israeli Defense Force say that they have seen clashes uh, and violent protests at about 30 different locations in Gaza and across the West Bank. They say that about 3,000 Palestinians have been involved in those violent clashes. They say that uh, 10 people have been injured and six people have have been arrested. Rock throwing, protests tensions high. So this is the weekend that tensions are high in Israel. None of this is new for Israel. Not to minimize a death, not that there's discord every day, but it's nothing shocking. If there was anything that I was surprised by, it was that Bloomberg and the New Yorker both tweeted this news item, Hamas calls for intifada. And indeed, here is Ismael Hania, head of Hamas. We would also like to say that this Zionist policy that is supported by America cannot be faced without launching a brand new intifada against the occupation and a blessed resistance against this occupation. A people's intifada. Wow, Hamas calls for a violent uprising against Israel. Oh, to be a fly on the wall during the vote of the senior council. Do you think the doves were all outmaneuvered? How much robust debate and clearing of their rigorous supermajority requirements do you think went on before Hamas took the bold and unique stance to call for an uprising against Israel? Of course, this summer, they called for an intifada. And last year, they called for an intifada. And they also branded the lone wolf attacks against Israelis as an intifada. Sometimes Hamas clashes with Fatah, the other Palestinian political organization. And when they do that, they usually accuse the leaders of Fatah with undermining the intifada. They're basically saying we're in the middle of an ongoing intifada. I don't think Trump's provocation was smart or good strategy or will lead to anything, but citing his backlash, the fact that Hamas called for an intifada, it's like saying you must be doing really bad as a member of the Philadelphia Phillies if the home fans boo you. No, that's just what they do. Am I comparing Phillies fans to Hamas? Oh, indeed I am. Another Ismail Haniya quote. And let me give you the visual to go along with the words here. He's standing in front of what I thought was a green-screened image of Jerusalem and the Dome of the Rock. You do this, you're going to be interviewed on TV, or at least your video would be played on YouTube. So you put, uh, you're standing in a sterile room, but you put something behind you that looks interesting. But no, no, it's not that he was there in person, but I saw him walk to the podium before speaking, and he was standing before an oil painting, a huge oil painting. I guess if you're the head of Hamas, there really is no need to change the backdrop with a green screen. You're not going to have to talk about, you know, the cold front coming in over the weekend. Could get a little bit of the wet stuff. Anyway, here's what he said with that all literally as background. This blind, unacceptable behavior by the American administration is a a satanic alliance. Yes, yes. 
I sure hope the recognition of the capital as Jerusalem does not retard the peace process. On the show today, I spiel about the criticism of Trump that I don't want to hear. But first, you know, striking out against Satan, that is not entirely unknown to United States politicians. In Alabama on Tuesday, there is a vote and Roy Moore's voters are being told that backing that candidate is not an endorsement of child molestation, but a vote for the opponent is indeed a vote for baby killing. And what's worse, I ask you, or I guess he does. On Tuesday, there will be a special election in Alabama. Maybe you heard about it. And will it be a referendum on where we're going as a country? Will it be a referendum on where Alabama is going on a state? I think Alabama will tell you the United States a lot about itself. Joining me now is John Archbald, who is a columnist for pretty much every newspaper in Alabama. That's how it works down there. It's AL.com. It's once the Birmingham News. Hello, John. How are you? Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm good. So first, let's dissect the polling and what happened was right after the allegations came out, Roy Moore took a hit, seems to have rebounded. But as many people have said, Alabama is not a state that national pollsters or pollsters uh, have a lot of experience with. And there could be an effect of not real people not really changing their minds so much as people not answering pollsters' questions. So from what you know about how polling usually goes in Alabama, what can we say about polling now where generally Roy Moore has a small lead, but usually within the margin of error? Right. Well, I mean, my, my take on the polls is that I, I don't put any stock in any of them. I mean, they're all over the board, and it seems a lot more like voodoo than it does science at this point. What I think that re- they really don't count, I mean, they seem the polls that are out there seem to put the number of people who respond as likely voters very high, you know. Mm-hmm. And the Secretary of State here is predicting that 20 to 25 percent of voters were at, will actually come out. So, so somebody's lying there. But uh, so, I mean, I think that more than any race we've seen in a while, you know, this really does come down to, to turnout more than it does the overall opinion. And uh, I think it's pretty clear that there are obviously more Republicans in Alabama. And, and if turnout is high, then, then Roy Moore is going to get in. But, but the hope there on the Democratic side is that people will just decide, I'm not going to tell anybody, but I'm just going to stay home. And that gives him sort of a, a chance. See, I figured if turnout was high, that usually if turnout's high, people break according to their partisan affiliation. On the other hand, it is a special election and turnout was going to be low. And I was thinking maybe it is the case that only the diehards will vote and people who are disgusted won't come out and vote against Roy Moore. They'll just stay home. Maybe a case can be made for that. Right. I mean, it's very clear that Roy Moore's base is going to come out and Roy Moore's base is significant. It's not over 50 percent, though, of, the, of, of voters, I don't think, overall, but uh, his solid base, I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Doug Jones's base is it, it was hard to measure because we've never seen it come to the polls, but it's very, very active and very, very loud, whatever that means uh, in terms of, you know, signs and social media and people protesting and that sort of thing. So I, I think that you're probably right. A very, very low turnout pretty much assures Roy Moore a victory. But a low to moderate turnout, I think, kind of creates a window not in which Doug Jones will win, but in which Doug Jones could win. 
Now, I want to talk about a couple of the things you just said. Roy Moore's base. So I think from outside, people paint with a broad brush and say he is a, is a Bible thumper, is a religious man. He talks about the Ten Commandments, wanted to keep them in the courts, and that appealed to Alabama voters. But the electoral history shows that's not necessarily the case. He hasn't had much success even after he took those stands. So is there an evangelical base, people who call themselves evangelical, who still think, not even in terms of this sexuality, but people who call themselves evangelical and hold to Christian values, which is, I assume, the vast majority of Alabama, but still thinks Roy Moore's brand of Christianity is a little too far. Right. And that has always been the case. Uh, the first time he was booted off the Supreme Court for building a monument to the Ten Commandments, a lot of Alabamians thought negatively of him, and he had sought to run for governor after that and was beaten handily, didn't even finish in the top three, if I remember, in the primary. And people were kind of disgusted with him. You know, time passed. The state made a complete shift from the supermajority Republican. And then I do think the presidency of Barack Obama played a big role because Alabamians reacted badly to that. And then when he was booted off the court the second time for refusing to obey the court order on gay marriage, I think a lot of Alabamians felt like he was treated differently than other people had been in that situation. And he he generated some new momentum that kind of expanded his base. But I think that base has expanded not just in Alabama, but nationally. I think a lot of it has to do with last year and the Trump movement and all that. I I don't think you would see Alabamians saying what they're saying now about Roy Moore before the Trump presidency. Yeah, but isn't it also true that part of Roy Moore's appeal, beyond everything what we talked about, his appeal why he beat Luther Strange is he was a slap against establishment politics, but not necessarily establishment politics nationally or the National Democratic Party. He was a slap against the machine in Alabama, and that dynamic won't be at stake in this election. Right. Well, I mean, he he lashes out against the establishment, everything, whether it's the Republican establishment, Mitch McConnell, whether it's the he's more friendly right now with the Alabama Republican establishment than he's ever been. The Alabama Republican establishment generally pushed by the business council, the business, you know, the chamber of commerce types in Alabama has always held their nose about Roy Moore and has worked behind the scenes more often than in front of them to have him defeated. And I think they're still doing that now. But the party structure itself, he's, uh, he's pretty friendly with at the moment. What about Doug Jones? Is he essentially making a very uh, conservative small C case, essentially saying, vote for me, I'm a normal enough guy and I won't embarrass you? Is that his big message? Well, well yeah, and I think it should be. I think it should have been from the beginning, I'm a reasonable guy. I mean, if you ask me, he's got some pretty terrible advice all along. Uh-huh. The first thing he did after... Uh, after winning the primary, was go on MSNBC and talk about abortion. And, you know, that's been used against him every day since, uh, sometimes fairly, sometimes unfairly. But that just simply gave ammunition to those people who want to paint him. And boy, have they painted him as a liberal socialist baby killer is what they're calling him down here now. So strategically, it wasn't the best move. But he should stick to the I'm a reasonable guy and I'm not crazy and I'm not going to embarrass you. Does he have some chits to play in terms of being really aggressive, really sticking it to Roy Moore? So far, he seems to be allowing Roy Moore to uh, self-immolate. But what if he said, you know what, let's make this a referendum on Christianity. Here's my reverend. I'm a better Christian than he is. 
Yeah, and he has tried that, and uh, it plays with the middle ground. It plays with those people who are, be, who are reasonable, but it doesn't play with those people who are Roy Moore supporters. I, I guess finding that middle ground is good. I mean, because I mean, you're, you know, he's a he's a he's a Methodist, a United Methodist, who's of a traditional sort. And to me, coming from that same background, it's it's almost hilarious to to hear how people say he's not a Christian, he's a Methodist. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so uh, the the big criticism right now is that he's trying to appeal to moderate white voters, but he's not paying nearly enough attention, some say, to black voters who he really depends on to come out and vote to swing the election. Do you think uh, black voters will be mobilized to vote in numbers more than they usually vote in an election of this sort? There's going to be a big push over the weekend. Uh, I think Cory Booker is going to be coming. I'm not sure that's finalized. But my gut tells me that uh, it's going to be low turnout overall. And uh, and I would think that probably black turnout would be lower than white turnout. You know, Donald Trump has said that uh, Doug Jones was soft on crime, though he's been a career prosecutor. Uh, how much purchase has that argument gained in Alabama? Uh, I mean, it has a pretty good effect for people who are just peripherally involved and and seeing what's going on, who don't bother to read or check for themselves or that sort of thing. But I mean, you can tell that it does sort of stick as a talking point. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, I guess that means it's a success. Doug Jones hasn't been a career prosecutor, by the way. I mean, he was a prosecutor. He was appointed U.S. attorney in the 90s and, and has been a defense lawyer for most of his career. Okay. But he, you know, he did, of course, prosecute the last of the uh, infamous 16th Street Baptist Church bombers with help from other people. And, and we let's be real about it, too. I mean, the prosecution took place 35 years after the event after the first of the bombers had been prosecuted many years before, it was not controversial. There wasn't anybody who would protest the fact that he was prosecuting a, a you know, an old clan murderer. I mean, not to say it's not a big deal, but it was not the most courageous act in, in all the land. So the, the world has kind of taken on this idea that Doug Jones was the only one who did it, but I mean, there were a, a lot of other prosecutors and, and others who worked on that and, and should get some credit too. Yeah. Are there any issues there that no one in the national media is paying attention to, but might affect a lot of votes? Well, there's really not. And the more camp, the, they honestly, they have reduced it to a single issue. And that single issue is abortion and the Supreme court. Mm -hmm. um, they have reduced Doug Jones to a, a pro abortion candidate. Yep. It's, it's all very stunning to me because I, you remember that, that we had a little problem with our governor here for the last couple of years. And he was this is a governor who came into office in 2014 with a 72 percent approval rating. And within a course of 18 months, he was reduced to the most unpopular man in the state because he had had a, a, a consensual affair with a younger staff member, younger being in her 40s and being misleading about it and using some state resources to cover it up. But, I mean, he was ostracized for this. And yet when we've come to a place and this time where a guy who was not that popular to begin with, people are apologizing for him, even though he is credibly accused of doing just incredibly freaky things with 14-year-old girls. So, I mean, it, it's hard to kind of rationalize. I mean, it's hard to kind of figure recon, reconcile that, but that seems to be where we are. And if you boiled it down to one thing, it would be abortion. Well, maybe it's hard for you to reconcile it, John, but you are only a Methodist. 
<laughs> That's right, which means I'm nothing at all. <laughs> um, do any of the additional revelations, the more women coming forward, the additional details about being banned from the Gadsden Mall and so forth, does any of that make a difference or has it all been priced in at this point? I think the more that's come out, honestly, the more it's hurt Doug Jones and helped Roy Moore. I mean, the whole Gadsden Mall thing, it's become a trope that everybody talks about. But that's one aspect of it that hasn't ever been confirmed. And there have been people who say he wasn't banned from the Gadsden Mall. And uh, that's been one of those areas, like that signature on that uh, yearbook from uh, one of the accusers that uh, is problematic, that the Roy Moore camp has focused on and used that to kind of uh, discredit all of the credible allegations. So, and Doug Jones's campaign has played right into that, or the or one of the packs that has has run ads for him by including some of those things and and others that were a bit of a stretch when the when the when the allegations themselves would have been enough. What so, are some of the other things? Okay, let's go through them. The from what I know, the the way Fox reports it, they use the verb forged. But I've read your papers reporting, and it turns out that the girl who he signed the yearbook at the restaurant, she wrote the name of the restaurant underneath it, which she said was notes. That's that's what she's saying? Yeah, it's my understanding that she labeled it underneath, which is sort of what I w- was thinking at the beginning. But honestly, for, for her and for Gloria Allred to allow that to come out without explanation initially is mm-hmm. devastating both to her argument and to the others who – Let's go ahead and acknowledge all the others were vetted by the Washington Post, and she wasn't. And for that to come out afterward, it does nobody any favors. Although, you know, her story is compelling, uh, but that sort of rips a hole in it. And the last thing is, I was just wondering, what if one member of the Alabama Crimson Tide, I'm not even saying Nick Saban, but just one player came out saying, I believe the women. What would happen? If it were Nick, if it were Nick Saban, it would be different. And I, and I think that Nick Saban, and you know, I've, I've tried to ask Nick Saban that, and he stu- he tries to stay uh, <laughs> away from politics. But I mean, yeah. it would be an extremely important statement for him to say that. And uh, if he believes that he should, I do think it would make a difference. Rightly or wrongly, Alabama people tend to trust those guys because they feel like they know them, and it would be a huge deal. John Archibald is columnist at the Alabama Media Group which is at al.com. Thank you, John. Thank you, Mike. Have a good one. And now the spiel. Donald Trump has a few flaws. Thin-skinned, a historical, mean-spirited, sexist, racist, stupid, overmatched, lies, bullies, cheats, demeans, finagles, self-deals, also seems to hate animals, made fun of the Pences for wanting to bring their pets to Washington. But there's a category of Trump criticism or smear job that I do not care about, and to some extent, I don't even get the -the off-the-record hit job that proposes to expose his personality traits or promises that soon a clear public debacle will be unfolding. This debacle rarely comes. One type of story that follows these lines is the recent Politico story that said that during the election, Mike Pence had a secret plan to buy off Trump and to run with Condoleezza Rice. Is it true? Who knows? It's juicy. And then a few weeks ago, every paper in America reported that Tillerson was just about to be gone at state. Well, Tillerson is still in its state. 
Would I be worse off if I hadn't paid that much attention to the stories that his departure was imminent? Was there much value to that? And it still may happen. He still may leave. He doesn't seem to be getting along with his boss. But with every source off the record, could we really evaluate what was going on with the players? Maybe that whole story was put out there to shame Donald Trump into keeping Tillerson on its state because he didn't want to prove the media right. Off the record is worthwhile to journalists. I'm glad it exists. But it is a weird dynamic with Team Trump. When you hear any of these people's names on the record, Huckabee Sanders, Stephen Miller, Gorka back when, it hurts the credibility of what they're saying. Even McMaster has seriously undermined his own credibility. So has Kelly. And yet, when a source about what's going on in the Trump world is quoted off the record, it takes on a greater sheen of believability. Like unnamed Trump administration officials saying that privately, Trump is raging at all hours in the private residence. Well, who could this off-the-record source, unnamed source, be so that they'd say, yeah, I believe that? Amorosa? Kellyanne Conway? I think it's right that we have discounted specific members of the Trump administration. They're not truthful. But when they're called an off-the-record source, I think what we do is we lump them in with how Washington and maybe journalism usually works. They're made to seem more functional when they're given anonymity. What this means is your random lurking in the shadows Washingtonian, whose name we don't even know, I think is correctly viewed as more believable than specifically named member of the Trump administration who says, that's what I'm saying and you could quote me on it. MSNBC shows are frequently quoting stories in Politico and The Hill and sometimes The Washington Post or The New York Times about how Trump is supposedly upset or livid or purple with rage behind closed doors. These don't strike me as implausible, but what do they give me? What are you going to tell me next? Are you going to tell me that Donald Trump is rambling incoherently or lashing out? He does that all the time. He does that in front of the cameras. He does that on Twitter. Thanks for the scoop, Woodstein. And then there was this story, which was really over-examined. Trump's slurred words at the end of his Jerusalem speech. Yes, yes, the words were slurred. And finally, I asked the leaders of the region, political and religious, Israeli and Palestinian, Jewish and Christian and Muslim, to join us in the noble quest for lasting peace. Thank you. God bless you. God bless Israel. God bless the Palestinians, and God bless the United States. Thank you very much. Thank you. CNN talked about it. Morning Joe talked about it. Ari Melber on MSNBC talked about it. Donald Trump has taken a very clear position, and I want to give him credit for that. Real leaders don't get thirsty. Now the White House fending off questions of its own about an apparent case of presidential dry mouth. But to what purpose? CNN read an article titled, Did Trump Slur His Speech? What is this, trivia? Yeah, he slurred his speech. It's not exactly subjective. The question is why? So CNN in the article puts forth some theories. Quote, people can slur their speech for any number of reasons. It could be a sign of problems with a nervous system disorder like a brain tumor or a stroke. People who have cerebral palsy or Guillain-Barr syndrome can struggle with slurring multiple sclerosis, muscular dystrophy, Lyme disease, Huntington's, myasthenia gravis, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Right now, it's like I'm listing the side effects of some medication. Uh, Parkinson's, Wilson's disease can all cause it. CNN says 
And they go on to say, dental work, such as ill-fitting dentures, can also be blamed. Medication can impact speech, as can drugs and alcohol. Or people can simply slur their words when they get tired. Wow, you kind of went inverted pyramid of likelihood with that one. Why do people blink? Well, it could be sudden onset blindness, cataracts, a hostage video, or dust in the eyes. I know there's a kind of liberal fever swamp that loves every conspiracy about Trump's impending derangement, like how conservatives used to love to gossip about Hillary's strokes. I understand why conspiracy theories are compelling, but do we need a conspiracy theory about Trump when he just tells everyone flatly every time, yeah, there was a conspiracy? Sometimes I wonder if we, as the public, if we got our information, not just by Trump telling us, but if we sussed it out or if it was sneakily acquired, if we would give it more credence. So in real life, Trump sits down with Lester Holt and says, yeah, I fired Comey over the Russia investigation. But what if the revelation were leaked on a secret recording and Trump denied it? And then later voice experts said, yeah, I think it's him. Would Wolf air it and say, now we caution you, viewer. We can't confirm at this time that it's Trump's voice, but sources close to the president say it was. Let's hear the tape. And then they play it. But regardless of recommendation, I was going to fire a public. And the subtitles on the screen would say, but regardless of recommendation, I was going to fire Comey. It'd be game over right there, or at least game a lot further along than the game is. What if today a secretly recorded tape of a fundraiser came out, like Romney's 47% tape, but this one said, WikiLeaks, I love WikiLeaks. In the Situation Room, a tape has surfaced of Donald Trump during the election. Days later, WikiLeaks would produce damaging information on Hillary Clinton. We are joined now by a panel of legal experts. Jeffrey Tubin, Gloria Berger, Alan Dershowitz, Judge Reinhold. Can the president undo this damage? This is a clear indication of conspiracy, of course. Clear indication of coordination. What can be done? But we don't ask that. We chase stories that may be true, may not be true. When the real story is plainly in sight, speaking glibly, loudly, incessantly. And yes, sometimes slurring what should be a deposition into a hot mic doing it brazenly and boldly. It's all on the record, the official record, not the criminal record. Maybe one day we'll get to that. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienname, whose slurred speech is an indication that he under-egged but over-nogged. The gist is also produced by Mary Wilson. Her bizarre rantings in the private residence has been attributed to her just getting into some back episodes of Homeland. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Though there are reports he will step down from that position for a sum of $800 million if he gets to keep his pets. The Gist, reporting now that General McMaster told the CEO of Oracle that Trump was stupid, a dope, and had the intelligence of a kindergartner. But he meant Chloe Trump, Eric's daughter, who's actually three years old. So it was a compliment. If you take the stupid and dope part in a good way. Oopru dapru dupru, and thanks for listening. And have you seen the Trent Frank story? Apparently, the man is resigning for speaking to female members of his staff about surrogacy. That was the admission. I spoke with female members of my staff about surrogacy, which makes me rethink this recent interview I just did. Joining me now is Mary Wilson, GIST producer. Hello, Mary. Hi, Mike. Do you have any experience with surrogacy? Absolutely. Do you want to talk about gestational surrogates? Wait, hold on. Oh. Actually, I have to resign. Bye, Mike. Bye, Mike.